Welcome to Roundtables on Race, the podcast that seeks to explore the relationship between race and the many facets of our society. I'm your host, the Reverend Kathy Walker, and we are so excited to be back for our second season. In this season, we'll explore the intersection of race and voting rights, with each episode taking a look at a different facet of this topic. Whether you became a fan of the podcast in our first season or are new to these conversations, we welcome you and are glad you're in this conversation with us. In this first episode, our season premiere, we want to bring some context of where we are today with a look back at the history of voting rights and how it compares with contemporary trends. Our hope is to see where progress has been made and what work is still left to do. We're delighted to be joined today by three guests with a wealth of knowledge on this topic. All three are noted historians and educators on the history of voting rights, especially in North Carolina and the South. And all three have brought that history in today's ongoing conversation around voting rights and the challenges those rights continue to face. Professor Michael Bitzer is a professor of politics and history at Catawba College in Salisbury, North Carolina. In addition to his teaching responsibilities, he is a frequent contributor to OldNorthStatePolitics.com, as well as numerous other books, and he is the co-author of The New Politics of the Old South and The Future Ain't What It Used to Be, the 2016 presidential election in the South. Professor Bitzer serves as a political analyst for several media sources on American, Southern, and North Carolina politics, appearing in interviews for outlets ranging from local news sources to the New York Times and the Washington Post. Welcome, Michael. Good to be with you, Kathy. Thank you for the invitation. Sure. Robert Korstad is an emeritus professor of public policy and history at Duke University. His research interests include 20th century U.S. history, labor history, African-American history, and contemporary social policy. He is the co-author of Fragile Democracy, The Struggle Over Race and Voting Rights in North Carolina, written with James Lelutis, who is also here with us today. Professor Lelutis is the Assistant Dean for Honors and the Director of the James M. Johnson Center for Undergraduate Excellence at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, his research interests include the history of the modern South with an emphasis on labor, education, race, and reform. Professors Korstad and Lelutis' latest research project is a history of voting rights and a research and civic engagement project on the moral challenges of poverty and the ethics of service. Welcome to you both, Bob and Jim. Good morning. It's great to Thank be you. with you. It is really great to have you all on today. I want you to know I spent some time um, as a relative newcomer to North Carolina. It was really inspiring to look at all of your works, um, particularly on the uh, role that uh, voting rights has played here in North Carolina. The South is something having grown up in Miami, which some people don't think is a Southern city, but in fact, <laughs> it's still there. And, um, and, and looking at voting rights throughout the South helps us to really understand voting rights in the country as a whole. Having said that, I want to begin with um, Bob, I think I'm going to ask you to tell me what you say to people who believe that voter suppression are hauntings of the past 
as opposed to the reality of today? Where are we today in terms of voting rights and voting suppression? Um, well, thank you, Kathy, and uh, uh, thanks to all of you uh, for being with here. Um, I think the first thing to understand uh, in response to your question is that uh, the history in uh, of voting rights and uh, has a has a long and cyclical history uh, in North Carolina and uh, in particular uh, ha has focused on the suppression of minority uh, voters uh, and if we go back uh, to the uh, post Civil War period, uh, Jim and I in our book uh, Fragile Democracy have have looked at 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 really a, a cycle of uh, what we call emancipatory politics and conservative reaction uh, going back to that time. And we've kind of uh, seen two, two kind of broad patterns that I think are useful in, in, in putting this uh, history in context. Uh, one starts with the the period at the end of the Civil War, the period of Reconstruction is really is what we call the, the, the uh, long period uh, period of, of Reconstruction that starts with the end of the Civil War and goes up to the late 19th century, the white supremacy campaign, the disenfranchisement amendment. Uh, and another, and, and we can talk more about what the, what the context and what are the tales of that. Uh, and then another period that really starts in the 1930s, and well, I would, we would argue that we're still in that that process now, and again, it's a it's a period. Uh, in, in both of these periods, you have an expansion of voter rights uh, and participation by minority uh, communities uh, that 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 is eventually kind of counteracted by conservative reaction in one form or another. Um, and so, one of the things we're trying to get people to understand is that. Uh, you know, as we're thinking about these issues today, they have a long history. Uh, they're they're in some there are things that are new uh, about what's going on today. There are other things that are very consistent with the kinds of of patterns, these kind of efforts to uh, suppress uh, uh, African American voters. Uh, and there are also uh, a lot of issues underneath what we think of as traditional voting rights, economic issues, issues about uh, social power, the distribution of resources in the state. Uh, so I think that uh, I think then in starting and in, in thinking about that larger question, uh, we really have to put it in this context of this kind of uh, this long cyclical history in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, in looking at your book, I was fascinated because it's hard to sometimes, as you're looking at um, what was happening at the sort of at the end of the 19th century, it, it you can just see so many comparisons. Um, you talk about the cyclical nature of where we are, are hearkening back to um, right now, according to contemporary trends. And so, Jim, what I want you to, to what I want to ask you to do is to sort of take us back to where we were in the country um, at sort of at that pivotal end of the 19th century, particularly here in North Carolina, but I think throughout the South. And what is it that um, really, um, I want to say that it is, um, this idea of power that always informs how we're going to shape voting rights in this country. Can you speak to that a little bit? 
Yeah, sure. Um, you know, what I would add to, um, to, what, to what Bob said there as a way of addressing this question is to first understand that in both of these cycles we identify, and we, we can certainly see this today, um, minority voter suppression has you know, been achieved through a whole variety of measures that on their face uh, have appeared race neutral but in their implementation have been profoundly discriminatory and also profoundly anti-democratic, that is with a, a little d. Um, but if you think about where we were at the end of the 19th century compared to where we were today, um, what we had seen by the end of the 19th century were two remarkable episodes of biracial politics in North Carolina. Uh, the mid to late 1860s and again in the late 1890s. And in both of those periods, large numbers of whites, a larger percentage than in any other Southern state came across the race line uh, and joined in a biracial political alliance. And if you look at what those uh, alliances did, um, they wrote voting rights into the state constitution. They wrote a guarantee of free elections into the state of constitution. And, and this is really important to understand, they, it, expanded economic rights as well as voting rights. It's really important to, to realize that these battles have been not just over voting rights, um, but over economic rights as well. And um, you know what we saw in the late 19th century was a virulent, violent white supremacy campaign, uh, and then the disenfranchisement of black men by way of an amendment to the state constitution in, in, in 1900. Uh, and, and of course, what followed as well is that um, kind of restriction on, on social provision and things like education, um, support for the poor and, and so on. So I think in all those ways, you can very easily, you know, see the reflection and hear the echoes in our politics today. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, Michael, I guess I would ask you, is was this a bit of uh, buyer's remorse in that th there was this expansion of rights at the end of the 19th century? But certainly by early on in the 20th century, we saw that, um, particularly here in North Carolina, people were looking for ways to certainly condense that. Um, as the violence was beginning to grow, then we had the onset of the Jim Crow laws and all of that as a way of balancing and reducing that amount of power. So if we fast forward now, and of course you see this on a broader scale as you write for a blog throughout the South, how has the South, how did it, um, how does it do this evolution of constricting and expanding powers? Is it simply um, out of necessity that we do this? Or is there something that is in our minds and in our spirits that says we really are seeking equality for, for everyone? Uh, that, <clears throat> that's a great question. And, and I think so much of what we're talking about isn't just the Southern phenomenon, uh, the Southern experience, but in today's environment, I think we're seeing this writ large across the country. Um, you know, when, when I teach uh, political history and political science to my students uh, in 2022, it is very much, I almost describe it as a mind warp in terms of going back to the late 1800s, early 1900s, to get them to think that in actuality, the political parties that they know today 
were in reverse back in that time period. And it, it, it is a struggle for them oftentimes to understand the dynamics of it was the Republican Party, the party that came out of the Civil War, that promoted Reconstruction, that sought uh, to bring about things like the 14th, the 15th Amendments that were so fundamental to reconstituting what the American experience should be and hoping to fulfill the idea of we the people uh, to the preamble of the Constitution, meaning all people. You know, granted, we went through fits and starts with trying to define that in the political and legal terminology. But then the, the, the Democratic Party was the party of restriction, the party of wanting to redeem back before the uh, Reconstruction and the Civil War era to really promote the idea of white supremacy, that it is very much this notion of groupism, identity, racial identity, us versus them mentality. And oftentimes when I assign books or to have class discussions on things like the Wilmington insurrection, uh, you know, that, that to, to, to students today to hear of a legitimizing coup d'etat in the United States, but let alone in North Carolina, most of them had never heard of that incident and, and the profound impact that that had on one of the core cities of the state. But it is it, it continues to reverberate uh, in, in our state and in our politics as well. Things have just flipped. <laughs> and, and to get students to think about that dynamic, that evolution, that change, you know, leading to uh, what some would describe as the second reconstruction era, the 1960s, and, and what I consider to be the most, one of the most monumental pieces of legislation in American history, the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Yes, it, it, it had a profound impact on Southern politics, and particularly North Carolina politics, but it, it had that impact that the country was seeking to again evolve into with the requisite, as, as my colleagues have described, the backlash effect of, of things going on. So, you know, we, we see the parallels, we see the trends, you know, it's easy to decipher that, but for students, that processing part um, really kind of opens eyes, I think, and for average Americans as well, who may not have studied this or, or been in depth in it. I think we have to understand where we are now has a lot of precedent going back in time to get us to where we are and where eventually we need to, to be as a country. Mm. Yeah, Michael, I, I, I think what you're saying is so important. It certainly describes the kind of teaching experience um, Bob and I have, have both had. And, you know, one of the things I um, always try to help my students understand is a, is a way of making sense of that realignment um, is, to, is to understand, uh, again, that connection between voting rights and economic rights. And the ways that these struggles have always been, if I can paraphrase one of the great Southern historians, C. Van Woodward, 
that these struggles have always been not simply to restore white supremacy, but also to determine which whites will rule supreme. Um, and so, you know, if we think about uh, voting restriction today, uh, it's, I think, no surprise whatsoever um, that, that lawmakers who are restricting voting rights are the same lawmakers who uh, have, at least until now, declined to expand Medicaid, who have cut the state's budget um, on public schools, you know, on an, an inflation-adjusted dollar basis, did away with the earned income tax credit, um, diminished uh, workers' uh, unemployment uh, benefits, and so on. So this has always been a, a struggle. This struggle over race and the struggle over economic democracy have always gone hand in hand. So one of the concerns I think that we have to address too is whether or not those people, the people who um, are very strident in their assertion that voting rights and other and economic rights need to be restricted in order for the rest of them, the rest of the society to thrive. And so the question becomes, are these people who are really um, faithful to the idea of democracy? Um, because in your book, when you talk about fragile democracy, I mean, that is certainly a term that we are hearing a great deal about right now, right? That democracy is teetering. And so the question is, is this experiment called democracy um, coming to an end or are we just in another cycle? And, Bob, and I see Bob smiling, so I'm gonna throw that question to you. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's an important question. And certainly if you read the newspapers or watch television, listen to radio every day, I mean, there's lots of discussion about this. Is the American democracy uh, being challenged and at risk right now? And, you know, if you go back to the late 19th century, that was a, a, a big question there. And certainly, you know, uh, it was at risk, and it was, and certainly democratic rights and citizenship participation was taken away from large numbers of people. And I, th I think you you see some of the same things going on today. You know, if you look at the, and this is again, I think Michael's right. This is a a nationwide uh, issue, and uh, uh, in, in the sense that. Uh, as people, the, the more people participate, the more the, the electorate is expanded, uh, the more low-income voters, marginalized voters uh, are involved and elect people who represent them, the, the, the concerns for kind of broader distribution of resources, uh, a government that serves the needs of all the people, not just a small group of people, uh, comes to the fore. And I think people in power, uh, for a whole variety of reasons, and some have to do with economics, some have to do with uh, just uh, you know, kind of brute political power, uh, find that very uh, threatening, and you know, and and seek different ways of trying to uh, try to restrict that kind of access to power. Uh, and we're seeing that today. I mean, I think that uh, you know, with with the Obama administration, there was uh, not only the election of a black president, but but uh, concerns for uh, broader kinds of social welfare spending. We certainly in North Carolina saw that when Democrats, uh, led by a lot of African American legislatures, were in power in the late eighteen 
late 1990s and the early 2000s, you know, they're expanding childcare, they're expanding education, they're expanding a variety of different things. And those uh, were uh, kind of anathema to, to physical conservatives who, uh, you know, see a more constrained uh, electorate is necessary uh, to to limit the kinds of redistributional effects that government can have. So if we think about um, then redistribution, um, certainly this is um, creating the kind of angst that is uh, requiring us or forcing some to adjust history. And again, going back to your book in particular, Fragile Democracy, one of the great things about studying history is that it reminds us that we've been here before. It's just, it comes back, you know, in either a more strident way or people take those lessons of the past and then say, oh, how can we improve upon uh, voting suppression this time and that sort of thing. Michael, as you look towards um, this election cycle that's coming up now, and then certainly the presidential election of 2024, get out your crystal ball, but to help us to understand going across the country, because now beyond, um, you know, certainly pre-civil, around the civil war times, you were looking at the rights of indigenous people and black people, those were the primary concerns. And now we have all of these various terrains on which this war is being fought, right, against of so many different communities, Latino communities, Asian American communities, and all of this. And so the question is, as we look at the, as, as the country kind of in a totality, um, how do we foresee that some of those historical trends are really being refined, renewed, and then unleashed again on various communities of color. Yeah, I, I will preface everything that I'm say is that in 2016, my crystal ball cracked and I have not gotten it repaired. <laughs> and so I, I am of a preference to try and explain things, to put things into patterns and trends and to say, are we seeing the setup the establishment, the continuation of those patterns and trends in 2022 and then into 2024. And I think what we're seeing to kind of harken back to the comments of, the, of, of, of just the previous question and conversation is this idea of democratic backsliding that a lot of political scientists are talking about that you know, we, we are getting to the point where we are seeing particularly political parties, but one party in, in particular, see the future. And the future is not as bright as for the other party. And I, I will be explicit. The Republican Party is a predominantly white, older, male party. And the country is not white, older, and male, no offense to my distinguished colleagues on, on this <laughs> podcast, but this is the reality of what the country is evolving into. And when I talk to my students and particularly the, and, and, and study kind of the genera uh, generational dynamics at play in our country, 
we are seeing two very different visions of what the United States can pursue to achieve that goal of a more perfect union. And when it comes to voting patterns, to voting behavior, we see very stark differences, not just in terms of race and ethnicity, but we're also going to be seeing it in generational terms. And we're, we're already documenting uh, from some research that I do on North Carolina that other political scientists are doing, that there's going to be a tectonic shift in the country uh, coming, I think, sooner than later. And when it comes to restricting electoral participation, it is an attempt to you know, put a hold or tamp down or break that eventual shift that's going to happen in the country. And I think the dynamic of what we are seeing today is even more, and I use this term very cautiously, but, but deliberately nefarious, in that we are seeing prominent individuals, including the former president of the United States, say, point blank, election lies, election denials. And when you already have trust in government at record low levels, when you already have people not willing to believe fundamental data, fundamental facts about how our elections are administered, and we see this continuation of a sense of, well, we can ignore the will of the people and do what we, our political party, want to do, that in and of itself to me as somebody who studies a democratic republic and wishes to see our grand experiment continue in this idea of self-governance is very disconcerting, is very concerning, and, and keeps me up at night, to be quite honest. Mm. And I think the targeting of communities, particularly communities of color that are exercising their political rights through the voting franchise uh, by calling into question the administration of our elections with no facts behind them other than, well, I think this happened, so we're going to take care of it and get the person elected that we want and you know, set aside the will of the people, you know, when you start to ignore the will of the people, you no longer have a democracy, period. Yes, Jim. Yeah, I just, uh, Kelly, want to go back to your question about history for just a minute. And uh, I think what I'm going to say, one would expect a historian to say, um, but that is just to underscore, you know, the fact that history matters. It really matters. Uh, that the general public, that our, our students understand this history. And, you know, you can see that today. I mean, look at the culture wars that are going on ar around history. Um, the attempts, um, you know, in many states to, to censor what is taught in high school and even what is taught at the university level. And we, you know, should remember that after the white supremacy campaigns, 
of the late 19th century and black disenfranchisement in 1900, the establishment of the regime of Jim Crow, uh, what went hand in hand with that was a purposeful rewriting of the history of the Civil War and Reconstruction. Um, you could see it on this campus in the teens and 20s and the numerous buildings named for Civil War generals, uh, named for strident white, white supremacists. You know, a history that, that described Reconstruction, that flowering of democracy in the late 1860s and early 1870s, uh, as a travesty visited upon the South. And that kind of mis purposeful misunderstanding of history, um, you know, underwrote uh, what I think, you know, we should put a sharp word on it. And when we're describing the regime of Jim Crow, uh, underwrote a system of authoritarian politics in the American South uh, during much of the first half of the 20th century. You know, one party rule in which there was virtually no room uh, for dissent um, by racial minorities uh, or even in class terms by, you know, a minority, uh, well, actually a large majority uh, of, of whites. Um, we should just be mindful of that, I think, as, as we watch these struggles over history and historical memory in our own time. Exactly. I agree. And I, I was startled recently to see where uh, I think it's a textbook out of Texas where they want to teach second graders. They want to drop the the term slavery or enslavement of people and change it to something called involuntary relocation, which I think would take a lot longer to explain to an eight year old, frankly. But that's just, you know, that maybe that's just me. Um, Bob. So let me go back to the history because I do think that this is so important and we are looking for way. I mean, there are those who are looking for ways right now to tamp down the teaching of history, I think really at all, uh, particularly American history. In North Carolina, um, where the history is just so rich, why was North Carolina, I think in a lot of ways may have been a model for other Southern states certainly to follow. Um, and do you consider it as, a battleground state according to the contemporary trends that we're seeing? Well, North Carolina is an interesting place. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Jim kind of alluded to this earlier. I mean, we've uh, always been a fairly divided state, even when we've had kind of uh, broad enfranchisement uh, between, you know, and even if you look in the late 19th century, the elections for governor, even when the Democrats had power, were were just decided by you know very few uh, percentage points in, in, in many cases, and if you look particularly in the aftermath of the the civil rights movement and the Voting Rights Act, uh, the margins are, are are pretty small between uh, who gets elected and who gets defeated. So I think I think North Carolina has always been a, a very con contentious place, and it's had um, you know. Uh, it, and I think one of the reasons for that is North Carolina, and this is where the history is really important, has always had a, a, an African-American community starting you know, even before the end of slavery that was uh, very much uh, committed to uh, uh, becoming equal of people being equal citizens and having the, you know, everybody having the same rights, everybody sharing in the same kind of benefits. 
the mobilization of African Americans uh, after the Civil War and the starting in the 1930s and and really going up today has been uh, an important part of our uh, of our history. Uh, and a lot of times that gets kind of dismissed so that the both in the late 19th century and, and looking at Reconstruction and, and looking at the fusion movement, uh, conservatives are always painting a picture of corruption and mismanagement. And these are people who don't have the, the moral capacity for democratic participation. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at doing a lot of study in the late 19th century. This is the kind of argument that people are using. And in fact, it's just the, the, the reverse of that is what's true, is that you know, people, freedmen and freed women and, and uh, freed people come out of the uh, of the Civil War and go into Reconstruction uh, with a very ambitious plan for making themselves part of the nation, of becoming citizens, of voting, of you know, of serving on juries, of of having equal access to the law. Uh, the same thing was true of the of the fusion movement. Not that there weren't problems in a complicated society like that uh but but you know if you look at the the the, the laws that people the fusion governments are writing you know it's about expanding voting rights it's just about expanding educational opportunities it's about expanding uh you know kind of public health facilities and things um so i think that this uh, you know that one of the things that's really important and is is kind of a uh, something that that goes through our history that we don't pay enough attention to is just the the organized visionary efforts of African Americans to claim a place uh, in uh, in our democratic system, uh, and that's a that's a critical part of the history that we need to be paying more attention to. I find it fascinating that one of the ways in which you see that Black people were as, as far back as Reconstruction, tr always trying to assert their um, sense of national pride was that every time we went into war, Black people would stop. The men would always pick up and feel that they were duty bound to go off and serve the United States um, in, in both world wars and all of those kinds of things, and then would come back to a country that would remind them that this was not the democracy that they had been battling for um, across the sea. Um, Michael, we don't have a lot of time, but I do wanna talk about women for a moment because obviously women got to had the, got the right to vote much later than men did, um, uh, white women and, and black women and so forth. Um, but um, so in this ongoing current trends, we don't see that there's a pushback necessarily on women as a total, right, as a, as a community um, being disenfranchised, except that to say that when we see things like the erosion of the Roe versus Wade, then we begin to say, how is the pushback coming for women as well? And so my question is, are we seeing that what we're that there are those who are really yearning to a society, not just where this time where it will be necessarily totally whites versus everybody else, but where there is this power structure of white men who are holding on and even finding ways to reduce the um 
the uh, power that women have in this country by by suggesting to them that your body and the rights that you have about your body are not your own. I, I think with the Dobbs decision from the U.S. Supreme Court this summer, uh, this will become the touch point, the cornerstone of a whole new set of battles. And I think you just need to look at what happened in Kansas with its battle and vote on a constitutional amendment that would have basically overturned a state decision that allowed abortion within that state and given the legislature a Republican legislature, the power to restrict abortions in that state. And I think for a lot of political scientists and analysts, we were looking at that as kind of a canary in the coal mine. You know, what is going to be the effect? And I think if you had come to us and said, well, the vote's going to be 60-40, most of us would have said, okay, it passed 60 with 60% of the vote. And in actuality, it failed with 60% voting against it. And so I think particularly, again, I go back to this generational dynamic, you know, we have voters under the age of 40 knowing nothing else but the freedom and the ability to control one's own body under Roe v. Wade as you know, defined furthermore in the Casey decision and now all bets are off. And I think, you know, this issue, particularly for women, will be a core crux of voting in future elections. But we also have to understand that it also takes into account religion and particularly evangelicalism. And that women, you know, female evangelicals, particularly white female evangelicals, want abortion restricted. And so it's not a kind of clean, you know, diversion or, or difference between them, but we are seeing this come back up. And it's, it's, it's almost this sense of, it needs to be a zero sum game between if you win, I lose. And that's not the case. Other groups can win and my group can still retain and keep what we have. We can build people up, but people don't necessarily have to lose because somebody else wins. And I think that this tension in American politics is played out racially, it's played out on abortion policies, it's played out in a number of fields. And I think that that's the trend that I'm gonna be watching Kind of moving forward as as our society continues to grapple with things. And do you agree with that assessment, Jim? I think that's right on. And I was just going to you know, sort of draw the the obvious connection here between you know the the issues that uh, Michael was talking about and the story we've been developing so far. And that is just a, a reminder that if we're talking about Roe, if we're talking about same-sex marriage, if we're talking about transgender rights, if we're talking about interracial marriage, all of those were established on the basis of the 14th Amendment uh, and its um, protection of equal treatment under the law and, and due process. 
And in terms of what may be you know, facing us over the horizon, um, we would all do well to read uh, Justice Clarence Thomas's uh, opinion in which he suggested that all of those due process uh, claims and decisions be re uh, revisited except for interracial marriage. So there's a very close connection here uh, between you know, the, the issues of gender and, and those of race that, that date back to the post-Civil War period. Let me, I've just got one. I think this, the issue uh, of the way these policies impact women is, is important. Uh, and I think it's not, I think the, the abortion issue in, uh, is, is, is critical. But I think if we look in North Carolina, if the policies that the Republican Party has put in place over the last decade or so, they've had a, a tremendous, tremendously detrimental impact on women. Uh, if you look at, you know, limited funding for childcare, the limited funding for public school education, uh, limited funding for uh, a variety of social welfare services. Look at the statistics on women's health, particularly minor minority women's health. It's, you know, all those statistics, getting back to Michael's argument before about let's look at the numbers and let's look at the reality uh, the reality for most, uh, you know, low-income, moderate-income women in North Carolina, uh, they, they haven't benefited from the policies that have been put in place uh, by Republicans. Uh, the same, you know, the same people who are putting all these voting rights restrictions in place too. So. Uh, uh, you know, I think that I, I think the gender issues uh, uh, have a, a have an important role to play here. I don't think politicians spend enough time talking about those issues. I mean, if you go and look at a lot of uh, evangelical white evangelical women, I mean, some of them are you know the 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 policies that have happened, uh, you know very detrimental effects on their uh, on their ability to to raise their families uh, keep their children fed keep their children healthy uh, and we shouldn't lose sight of those uh, you know it's uh, that's another dimension of it that's very helpful so i think it's fair to say that the power struggle is really is real it's alive and um, and very challenging in America in this moment. The three of you are historians. So as we begin to close out this segment, what I'd like to ask you is, having seen the pendulum swing back and forth um, over these two <laughs> plus centuries, what does the future hold for us in North Carolina and in the country as a whole as it pertains to coming to a place where we um, share, figure out how to share this power so that there is a sense of equality um, for the country? And if not, what is the price that we ultimately will pay for the decisions that we are making right now? And I will start with you, Michael. Sure, I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but I've, I've done a lot of thinking about this. And to me, what the, the future holds is a generation that looks at things in very different ways and sees the power of government, the role of responsible individualism in a very different light. And what I would say is 
there's this, this divide between millennials and Gen Z and basically boomers. And I think in my estimation of the way that I look at the patterns and the trends evolving, this generation under the age of 40 looks at society, looks at government involvement in very different ways. And I think the, the, fundamental, the fundamental core to me is does does one party in particular accept that change and work within it? Or are they going to try and hold on to past dynamics and their power and try and prolong that eventual evolution to it? Um, you know, when I talk to students today, they are basically social libertarians. They don't care what you do in your bedroom. They don't care what you do. Just leave them alone, you know, kind of thing. And it's a very distinctive, different political and philosophical, ideological out, outlook that they have that the country, I think, is really kind of transforming itself underneath us. But there will come a moment when that transformation is really evident and I think it will shock a lot of people. Um, that's kind of my crystal ball predictions moving forward. Great. And Bob, if I can ask you what your crystal ball says, <laughs> how will you respond? Uh, well, I, I think I think most of that's true. I, I, I guess I think that we're probably in for a pretty um, contested period for a while. I mean, given the the political power that conservatives have, whether it's in the Supreme Court or state legislatures. I mean, we got to remember, as we were talking about, there was a, you know, a period from the disenfranchisement uh, amendment to the to when we see activity starts starting again in the 1930s that were, were pretty dark days in terms of democracy. Uh, in North Carolina. I mean, and I think Jim's right that we basically lived then and, and for even a longer period of time under basically authoritarian government. Uh, and I think we're, you know, I think it's going to take a while to, uh, to, to deal with the, the, the kind of power that these people have accumulated, uh, particularly the kind of, with the kind of wealth inequalities we have in this, in this country and the willingness of, of wealthy people to spend huge parts of their fortune, uh, you know, maintaining their uh, their people in power. So, um, yeah, I'm, I have to be some. I have to be optimistic over the long term. But I think we've got some some a lot of uh, a lot of b battles uh, ahead of us to get to that point. Thank you, and Jim. How do you weigh in on this? Uh, well, what I usually do in this case is uh, a dodge and say I'm a historian, <laughs> uh, not a futurist. Um, but you know, I think we can we can look back at this history and uh, gain some perspective on the moment we're in and and on the future. I, I think there are a number of lessons here. I mean, one is that democracy is not and never has been a settled product that it has been a struggle, you know, as Michael suggested at the beginning of this conversation, uh, from the earliest days of this republic, it's it has been a, a struggle. 
uh, and the protection of that democracy going forward demands engagement and vigilance uh, from each and every one of us. Because the other lesson I think that history teaches um, is how quickly uh, democracy can be lost. Um, and, you know, again, as we've been talking about this whole time, uh, that's not just losing an abstraction, uh, it's losing something very fundamental um, to the quality of our of our lives as, as, as human beings, of our, of our dignity uh, as human beings. So I, I look back at this history and I find plenty of reason to be inspired um, by those episodes of uh, kind of insurgent biracial politics. And I find lots of reminders uh, of the importance of, of vigilance. I often think about that, just that one line in our Pledge of Allegiance, you know, injustice for all. And I think that it, this is where we really have to be focused on how do we create that world in which there will truly be um, justice for all and what will that ultimately look like? So I am so excited to have had you all as my guests today. I wish we could talk more and hopefully we can have you all again because I think this is a really important conversation and it's one that we need to continue to have. So to Michael Bitzer, to Bob Kortstad, to Jane, Jim Lulutis, thank you very much for being on this episode of Roundtables on Race. That's all the time that we have for today. I also want to thank my wonderful producer, Christine McTaggart, and invite all of you who are listening to us to stay tuned for further episodes of Roundtables on Race.